Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. Hey, everybody. I hope you're staying sane and finding ways to thrive as the days are turning into weeks of stay at home. I don't know about you, but in our family, we've cycled through the board games and the family dance-a-thons and books. And now uh, we're, we're, Mari and I finally broke down and uh, decided we need to watch a TV show. So we've had uh, the show called This Is Us recommended to us for years. So maybe we're late to the game, um, but we just started it. We're into season one and we just love the premise because it's this family and you follow the, the drama of their relationships in real time, but simultaneously you see flashbacks to their childhood. So the three kids, two of whom are twins, one's adopted, all born on the same day. And the, the events that happened to them in their childhood, like 25 years ago, are playing out in their adult lives. There's this one episode where one of the boys um, has a traumatic experience, right? The family's at the pool. And you can imagine if you've got three kids around the same age, paying attention to each one of them would be a challenge, right? So they're at the pool and the kid's in the, in the water saying, dad, watch me, dad, watch me. He keeps trying to get his dad's attention, doesn't get it. So he goes further and further out toward the deep end until he can't touch the bottom, he can't swim, and he's just about to drown. He's flailing in there, finally gets out of the pool. Uh, all of it trying to get his dad's attention and approval. But that event goes on to, to form this powerful force in his life that 25 years later is still driving his train. You know, the great 20th century American author William Faulkner famously and hauntingly wrote that the past is never dead. It's not even past. The past is alive and present and for so many of us pulling our strings. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes famously in chapter two, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And this is the glorious truth of the gospel. This is what we celebrated and remembered during Passion Tide a few weeks ago, that we die with Christ and we experience new life with him. We're resurrected with him and all things are being made new. But it says then in Galatians chapter four, Paul continues writing to this young church and he says, I feel like a parent. You're like my children. And he says, I'm, I'm struggling. It's like the pains of childbirth. Now, how a man knows exactly what childbirth feels like, a little weird, don't get that one. But he says, I continue to groan in those pains until Christ is fully formed in you. And so it seems like there's this formation gap. On the one hand, we die to our old selves and to our sin nature, and we come alive in Christ, and we're righteous in him instantaneously. But on the other hand, there is this lag time, this progressive righteousness, only after which, it seems, Christ is formed in us. And so what happens until Christ is formed in us? That's the time that we're focusing on over the next few weeks. Pastor George did a great job kicking us off last week by looking at a character sketch, right, from um, the Old Testament hero Jacob, and so powerful how we need to uh, take the mask off. And God invites us to be honest and humble and looking at ourselves. And that's where the process of Christ's 
formed in us begins. We're going to continue with another character sketch this morning. Now, some of us may be thinking, hey, right now we're in this time of great uncertainty, change, fear. Uh, Who knows what the future looks like and when we return to normal. And so whether we've consciously made this decision or not, for some of us, we've kind of pushed pause on the process of growing in our spiritual lives, thinking, well, that'll be there when the world turns right side up again. And for now, I just need to get through this time. But waiting for the dust to settle is missing a golden opportunity. It's while the dust is in the air and everything is in upheaval and we're under pressure that so much of Christ being formed in us happens. As C.S. Lewis famously put it, It is in the hard times, much more than in the good times, that God is making us into the creature he intended us to be. And so let's lean in during this time. We're going to look this morning at another Old Testament hero, kind of a character sketch for Moses. It starts in Exodus chapter 3, where Moses, of course, out tending his sheep, minding his business, sees a burning bush. It doesn't burn up. He's curious and so he goes over to it and then lo and behold God speaks to him from the bush and Moses he doesn't doubt that it's God he knows who it is he knows God and has been following him and uh, and so he listens to what God has to say in verse uh, 7 the story picks up the Lord said to him I've seen Moses the misery of my people who are slaves in Egypt. I've heard them crying crying out and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into a good and spacious land. So now Moses, go, go. I'm sending you to deliver my people. Moses hears this and recognizes that it's God. And in verse 11, responds with protest. It says, but Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Fascinating. Moses doesn't say, wait, wait, pause, stop the train. Who are you? Moses knows who God is. And his question doesn't seem to be in God's capability, his identity or his power, his regard for his people, Moses' concern and what he pushes back on God with is, who am I that I should do this, right? It's self-deprecation. It's insecurity. And so in verse 12, God said, hey, Moses, I get it. Like a good father, he's patient. He explains, he says, I'm sending you, but you don't have to take the burden of this challenge on your shoulders because I will be with you. But in verse 13, Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, yeah, but uh, what is his name? Then what should I tell him? And so Moses continuing to uh, hem and haw, maybe protesting about the thing that really isn't the thing. God responds patiently and says, Yahweh, I am that I am. You can tell him, I am sent you. And thus, he revealed to people the glorious name of God. But in 16, he said, go, assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I've watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of the misery that you're in, in Egypt. The elders of Israel, God said to Moses, they will listen to you. But in verse one of chapter four, Moses responds in protest again and says, yeah, what if they listen to me? And they're like, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but they don't believe me. And they're like, the Lord did not appear to you. 
God, again, patient with Moses says, all right, here, here's some miraculous signs. You do these signs, they'll know that what you're saying is true. But Moses, I'm going to do this thing. Moses says in verse 10 to the Lord, pardon your servant, but um, there is this matter. I've never been a good speaker. I've never been eloquent. I'm slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Moses, grr. Who gave human beings their mouths? It is I, the Lord. Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. And finally, Moses comes right to the point in verse 13, protests again and says, pardon your servant, Lord, but please send someone else. It's as if he's saying, God, all the protests aside, I'm just not the guy for this. I don't have what it takes. Well, the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And every parent who's ever raised a child understands this feeling. You've been a good parent. You've answered the 10,000 whys. You've processed it through. And now you just need him to obey because I said so. And so God gets angry with Moses. Finally, Moses heads out. And at a lodging place, verse 24, listen, this is important. Along the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Moses' wife took out a knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. And the Lord then let him alone. So what is this about? How does this work? Well, it just so happens that this week, Pastor George told me he's writing a term paper for seminary on the atoning power of the foreskin. So he said he's going to do an equipping class on it. And he actually wants you to text him if you're interested, preferably late at night. What's going on here? Why is Moses so dead set against obeying God, going to do this thing that God said he wanted to do through him? Is it that Moses doesn't believe that God is who he said he is or could do what he said he would do? Is it that Moses didn't care? He's like, you know what? That's not my problem. I've got sheep to attend to, I'm out. I think to really figure out what's going on, we got to look at Moses' backstory. He's 80 years old, flashback 40 years, and we see in verse 2 a little glimpse of what may be pulling his strings. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. Now, Moses had been living for the first 40 years of his life in Pharaoh's household. He was raised in privilege and he was aloof of the people of Israel. He didn't experience slavery like so many of them did because he was adopted at an early age, didn't ask for that, didn't deserve it, just got it. But something in him like went off at the age of 40 and he knew without knowing that he had a larger purpose maybe. So he goes out to where his people are working and he sees them being mistreated by their slave drivers. And it galls him. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And so he looked this way and that. He saw no one. And he took his God-given destiny to liberate God's people from bondage in Egypt he took this God thirst for justice, which had been hardwired into his soul, and he went rogue. He went vigilante justice with it, right? And so he kills the Egyptian. And he hit him in the sand. And the next day when he went out, uh, emboldened by his vigilante actions, feeling like, hey, this is who I'm made to be. He can't 
unsee what he saw the day before. So he's drawn again to what's happening here with my people in slavery. And when he goes out there, this time he sees two Hebrews fighting. And the word of God says, he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? What's clear here is whatever else may be going on, Moses knew. He knew what was going down. He knew his people were oppressed and he was not okay with it. And he sensed maybe in just a formative embryonic way that God had made him for something more than living in luxury in the palace and turning a blind eye to the plight of his people. He sensed that God had prepared him for this and starts responding to that call. Now he does it the right thing at the wrong time and makes the mess of the situation. But clearly he knew and clearly he cared. Hebrews tells us in the so-called hall of faith in chapter 11, that Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He didn't want to bury his head in the sand. So if that's what was happening in his life at the age of 40, what changed to cause him to turn away from God seven ways when God said, I want to send you, I want to go with you, and I'm going to work deliverance through you? What was the difference? In verse 14, Moses' countrymen responded when he tried to break up their fight. Wait a second, now who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid and he thought, ah, what I did must have become known. And his world changed that day. When Pharaoh heard of this, moreover, he tried to kill Moses. And so what did Moses do? He fled, he ran away, he went to Midian and he lived in the desert for the next 40 years. It seems that something flipped in Moses and he made a vow. He had a trauma, a moment of bad judgment, responded to a righteous impulse in an unrighteous way. Anyone ever done that? Made a horrible mistake. That mistake became known. And then Moses responded with a vow. And he said, I'm never going to go back there. I've burned that bridge. I've made a mess of the calling of God and there's nothing left for me. And so that vow had been pulling his strings for 40 years. Moses spent the best decades of his life, his most influential and strongest times, living away from the brokenness of his past, living away from his failure, his mistake, and all of the pain that it caused. And so those years, he lived as a shepherd, never acting on what he had begun to discover as the purpose of God for his life but you can bet it didn't leave his mind. Many of us are like that. We're living in response to what happened sometime before. We're living out of and living away from the fear and the shame. We're living out a vow. That will never happen to me again. 
I remember as a child, life was going great at age 10 and then my parents moved because my father retired from the military. And as I've told you before, we landed in New England where everybody had lived there for multiple generations. I was the one kid in the playground that didn't talk like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon and I couldn't have felt more out of place. But being a, a kid and desiring to fit in, I remember my first week at the new school going out to the, um, to the football field where they were gonna play a Nerf football game. And uh, one of the boys was picking up teams against the other boy. And I'm like, hey, can I be on your team? And somebody led me to believe I could be in his team and then said something rude and snarky and it crushed me. I got uh, my hopes up and then I was humiliated and walked away alone and I made a vow. I didn't know I made a vow, but out of that traumatic experience of that time, I decided no one's ever gonna do that to me again. I'll be the guy picking the teams. I'm going to be better in every possible way so that I never go back there. And it took me well into my young adult years to discover this about me and the unrighteous ambition that drove me out of those formative broken experiences. So many of us are living out of the pain of the past and we're barely conscious of it. You know, one of my favorite writers and thinkers, Dallas Willard, said so ominously, we live from our depths, most of which we don't even understand. And so we're all finding during these high pressure times that what's in us is coming out of us. Last week, George shared the story of one of his neighbors who was lighting up his son over something frivolous. And that wasn't even about his son or him or coronavirus or anything going on now. In all likelihood, that was about something that happened, a series of events, failures, mistakes, or traumas from years ago that were pushing his buttons and pulling his strings and causing him to act crazy and propagate the hurt. Too many of us are living out a vow. And now during these hard times, the pain is seeping out the cracks. What we've kept suppressed in the normal times, what we've managed when things are good is making us act crazy. And we don't know what to do about it. And listen, no one's acting crazy for no reason. No one's lighting up their son in the cul-de-sac for nothing. No one's like hoarding irrationally their, inner, their personal hygiene products for no reason. We're all who are acting crazy. We're doing it because something's pulling our strings. And so the question is, what are we gonna do about it? Pastor Pete Scazzaro in his wonderful book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, wrote, true spirituality frees us to live joyfully in the present. It requires, however, going back in order to go forward. This takes us to the very heart of spirituality. And, dis and discipleship in the family of God, breaking free from the destructive, sinful patterns of our pasts to live the life of love God intends. Friends, in order to go forward, we've got to go back. There's no other way to do it. This is part of how Christ is formed in us. And while every impulse for many of us during this time is like, you know what? When there's less demand for my mental and emotional bandwidth, I'll get to work on my soul then. For now, I'm just gonna hunker down, call it good, push the pause button, and try to figure out how to get back to normal. But we don't have that choice. You know, it's been said many times that pressure doesn't forge character, it reveals it. What's 
in us is what comes out of us when the pressure's on and it's when it costs us the most. So what are we gonna do about it? Will you engage Jesus? Will you allow Jesus to be formed in you during this fertile soil of this difficult time? In order to go forward, we've got to go back. Many of us are living like there's this dragon behind the door. We're living with this thing barricaded off and we've nailed it shut and we've insulated it and we've fireproofed it and soundproofed it, hoping that no one else will ever see or know, but it's there. It's always there and we're living in its shadow. And we've been living like that too long. Living out of that decision, out of that trauma, or out of that failure, trying to live away from that painful moment, and we're missing who we were made to be. We've got to go back. Dan Allender wrote in The Cry of the Soul, we strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. We strain out anything disturbing in order to gain tenuous control of our inner world. But in the times that our inner world is sh are shaken, then that tenuous control is lost and it all comes bursting out anyway. What better time to dig deep, to trust Jesus, and to go back and invite him in? So the question this morning is what trauma or mistake or failure buried in your past is pulling your strings today? What have you locked away? And how's that going for you? Maybe you made a mistake like Moses, a mistake that's haunted you and that's told you a lie that you've internalized as your core truth. This false ungodly belief has driven you not only not to be a functional, healthy, follower of Jesus, but away from the person Jesus has made you to be, such that it's the best you can do, maybe the most energy you can expend just to keep up the charade. Maybe it's something that someone else did to you. You didn't ask for it. You didn't deserve it. But that hurt has left you with an inner vow that says something like this, shame me once, Rather, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I'm never going to let that happen again. So our guard is always up and we live in protest, but we fail to realize the potential, the destiny to which God has called us. If only we'll allow him in. Maybe we tried something and it didn't work. And the message that we have internalized is, I don't have what it takes. Somebody else is going to be better suited to do that thing which used to burn in my soul. Perhaps we've had some success at keeping the dragon behind the door, but crisis brings it out, doesn't it? Friends, we cannot simultaneously live away from our brokenness and into our God-given destiny. Did you hear me? We cannot simultaneously live away from our brokenness and into our God-given destiny. We have to choose a path. And Jesus is inviting us to receive his formation in us. 
He offers healing and freedom. If only we'll take off the mask like we talked about last week, face what's back there, who and what we have been, and then invite Jesus to make us new. We've got to go back. Last week, I was on a Zoom call with a bunch of pastors and John Maxwell was on there. He said something in his typical pithy way that stuck with me. Everything that is untapped in your potential is because of the price you're not willing to pay. It takes courage to go back, doesn't it? I know it's hard. It's hard for me too. And God's bringing up things in me this month in my heart that I didn't even know we're there. This is a journey of formation that we're all on together with Jesus. And he's got grace for every one of us, wherever we are. I'm of the belief, friends, that almost everything we want, though, is outside of our comfort zone. It takes courage and it's so worth it. Will you lean in during this time? Will you lean into Jesus? Go back. Embrace the brokenness that's there and invite Jesus and his healing and hope. Jesus, at the beginning of his life, he began with the words that the prophet Isaiah foretold about the Messiah. The spirit of the living God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted. Jesus came so that we could be forgiven and free and healed. Would you let him in? Pray with me this morning. Father, in the name of Jesus, thank you that you care enough to go back with us and that you're not waiting for us to get it together so that you can do something good through our lives. Thank you, Jesus, that you came for the express purpose of binding up broken people like us. So would you come in and illuminate what's back there? Shine your light into the inky darkness of our broken hearts and show us what the dragon is behind the door, what's pulling our strings. And would you give us grace and strength to find your healing and to receive your restoration and to go forward in your hope. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 